gas companies are trying to figure out, is this a disruptor? Am I going to have to have a network that transports all this hydrogen wherever it's coming from? How do I maintain that infrastructure play in the grid of the future? Hydrogen, the most abundant element on Earth, has been hailed for decades as a beacon of the coming clean energy revolution. So why has it still not arrived? And why is everyone all of a sudden talking about green hydrogen? My name is Nico Johnson, and I'm your host as we navigate the hype, the hope, the reality, and the fiction in this search for truth in green hydrogen. This five-part series presents unique perspectives on how each of us might play a role in the greening of the hydrogen economy, the massive opportunities, and potential pitfalls that come with it. Green Hydrogen is a production of Suncast Media, and Season 1 is brought to you by Intersect Power. In Part 2 of this series, we are going to speak with Jason Goodhand. Jason is the global segment leader for energy storage at DNV, globally recognized third-party engineering firm, where Jason has more than 15 years of experience in the cleantech energy sector, including storage, renewables, and even hydrogen fuel cells. His focus is to grow DNV's industry-leading energy storage and hydrogen energy services worldwide. And today, he's going to talk to us through 20 years of experience about how he views the green hydrogen economy. Jason, I have been looking forward to a conversation with you about the emerging green hydrogen economy. I can't wait for your answers. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm going to plagiarize, if I may, a little bit from the DNV website because, you know, some very smart people have thoughtfully crafted the, the position that at least your company takes on this hydrogen opportunity. The world is heading for hydrogen and for many, perhaps listeners right now, a large scale hydrogen economy is going to be essential to the clean energy future. That's an assumption that I think we want to both challenge and, and, and open up to introspection today. It seems that from production to consumption, the business case for hydrogen is growing and the hydrogen economy is emerging yet. To fully realize that potential, industry and governments are going to need to focus on four key areas to scale the hydrogen economy, according to DNVGL. Safety, infrastructure, decarbonizing production, and policy investment strategy as four sort of buckets. Before we jump into kind of breaking down all of those different areas and, and much more, to really open up what is the green hydrogen economy and green hydrogen opportunity. I have a broader question for you. You're the leader for the energy storage segment and you're here to talk about hydrogen. How has the burgeoning hydrogen economy created challenges for your day-to-day -day work? And perhaps maybe another way to say it is what, what presents the most challenges for you right now as you balance the need for those two elements of your work? Yeah, back in 2019, when I got hired at uh, DNV, it was purely for for energy storage, which was typically going to be your, your lithium EV battery style utility scale projects. And uh, at one point, uh, uh, my boss was saying, you know, we have some hydrogen activity that we've been doing historically, but now it's becoming a thing. And we need, uh, I need to get this off my lap. Does anybody know about hydrogen? And I sort of sheepishly put up my hand and said, I actually started my career a long time ago in hydrogen. I'd be happy to sort of take that off your hands, talk to customers, et cetera. And very quickly after raising that hand, uh, I would say I'm spending probably half my time or more on hydrogen because it's growing so quickly. And while we do have experts in-house uh, around hydrogen, 
we don't have the size of a team that that industry is sort of demanding. And I think every part of the value chain, whether it's renewable energy or oil and gas, everybody's trying to ramp up to have enough people to sort of look at this and work on the projects. And um, it's incredible how how fast it came around this time. Well, you say how fast it came around this time. And I mentioned just a minute ago that two decades ago, you were working in hydrogen and, and hydrogen as an opportunity is not a new subject. So I would beg the question from you, how has the market developed? What's changed over the last 20 years that allows us to think and presume that now is the time for hydrogen to finally show up on the main stage and, and have staying power? You know, that's a great question. And I asked that of myself when it sort of came <laughs> around this time, because the uh, there'd been an expression in the industry, hydrogen's been 10 years away for the last 20 years. And we had that expression 20 years ago. Uh, I think when I was part of it, we didn't have electric vehicles the way we have today. And a lot of the focus was on how do you control the tailpipe? That seems like mm-hmm. a long-term sustainability or or pollution type of problem. And so a lot of people were thinking, yeah, we're going to make engines for electric cars that run on hydrogen and just water comes out the back. And it, it turns out that it, at the point we are now, that's not what we're really focusing on so much. There's a lot of things you can do with hydrogen. And it turns out that the passenger cars, while they they may come and that may work in, in some countries economically, that's not what's sort of driven things forward. I think what we've noticed is that, you know, back 20 years ago when we were talking about, hey, let's make it from electricity, let's use renewables to create hydrogen from water and electricity. Back then, the cost of renewables was incredible. Uh, I hadn't even entered the wind industry yet because we didn't have a wind industry in Canada Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) at that point, really. And so now we've seen the cost of solar and wind come down so much that as an input to the cost of hydrogen, it doesn't seem like an impossibility. Uh, it seems like an opportunity. You know, and Nico, there's there's one other thing that I think that really sort of shines the light on this hydrogen future. The equipment that you use to turn water into hydrogen, an electrolyzer, those are pretty expensive. We've been making those sort of in the R&D realm uh, for for a couple decades. And what we see now is that, yes, the designs have improved, which makes them a little bit cheaper or more efficient. But but what we can really envision is that, you know, these electrolyzers are made up of a bunch of small repeatable plates, mm. the same way that like a solar farm is made up of many similar modules or a battery facility is made up of many tiny cells. And so scalability is just an obvious outcome that if we can sort of scale up demand, the manufacturing of the uh, the hydrogen production equipment, these electrolyzers, is going to get very cheap. So that in line with cheap renewable electricity in the future, those are the two things that drive cost. And so mm. we, we've got a handle and a vision on how that's going to work out. We didn't have that 20 years ago. That is a great tee up for the question that I know everyone is thinking when they click play on this episode, uh, as we have suggested, the green hydrogen opportunity exists within a broader hydrogen economy. And but green hydrogen is getting a lot of attention for supplying future energy needs. I think that we have to better define uh, where it fits within the energy uh, spectrum. Naturally, challenges abound. There are high production costs, high efficiency losses during the production process that you allude to, especially with regards to components like the electrolyzer. But once this production does start to scale, there seem to be a lot of potential applications for green hydrogen. And that is 
the crux of what we want to explore here today. I'd love to hear from your perspective, not only which application areas you expect can scale up the most over the coming decade, but which can scale most rapidly? Well, I think the one thing that there is hydrogen production today, and most of where people are using that is as a a feedstock where they need hydrogen to go into some other chemical. And one of the biggest ones is they make ammonia from hydrogen and they use that for fertilizers. So there's a lot of facilities where you're taking natural gas as the source for hydrogen. You're stripping it out and you're making CO2 when you do that. So it's not green and clean the way they do it today. And you take that hydrogen, you make ammonia and you make a fertilizer product. They also uh, upgrade other chemicals using um uh, hydrogen, that market's probably not going to grow rapidly, right? We're not going to triple the amount of fertilizer we need, you know, two years from now, but there is an existing market to step into or mm-hmm. to green up. Now you get into the economics of, well, you can't just green it up if it costs too much. So that's, people are looking at that as an early market, but they have to figure out how to get the costs down. At the same time, there are going to be new markets. So steel making is a, an area where you don't just need the hydrogen for heat, but it's also a, a useful part of the, the steel making process to get the, the oxygen out of the iron ore. When you look there, there's a there's a, a sort of a premium play there uh, that you don't get with natural gas per se. So that might be an early market. They're also looking at uh, long haul trucking. Uh, that might be in a really attractive area because you're not charging up a battery mm-hmm. that needs to take you across the continental yeah. United States, you're just filling up with a gas, which is uh, quite quick and could last a bit longer. So there's areas where we're, we're looking at use cases that are going to be early, and some of the ones I've mentioned are. And then there's further long-term use cases that get people really excited, like the whole grid. Can you use hydrogen as some sort of energy storage play? You know, make hydrogen when when renewables cost almost Nothing during the middle of the day when you've got too much power. Can you turn that into a product and, and let it sit there and then make electricity later? You can and you and you might have to when when we get if we're aiming for hundred percent renewables, I don't know uh, I don't think lithium's gonna get us there. So hydrogen's one of the options that might work. Yeah, and we'll definitely explore a bit more because that is your area of expertise. A little, uh, we mm-hmm. want to explore the the notion of leveraging hydrogen as an energy sink, as a as a way to dump excess electricity during curtailment moments or to allow even for additional trading opportunities in the marketplace. So Jason, we'll explore a little bit more some of the uh, deeper uh, opportunities within the green, green hydrogen economy. But in these early examples of potential scale, steel, long-haul trucking, even grid stability for, for storage, what are some of the structural components that are inhibiting that scale? today? Well, I think there's some, some high level things like safety or, or regulation that matter. But when you, if you look at this as just a sort of a business case, or what are the pieces that make this economy work? You, I always look at it in three ways. One is there's your production side of things. So can you make it cheaply and cleanly in the way that, that customers want? And there's a cost associated with that. And that varies quite a bit depending on where you are and how you made it. Two, there's sort of a storage and transportation element. And that could be natural gas pipelines. We could be talking about, you know, keeping it in salt caverns. We could convert it into something like ammonia and try and ship it. That that piece is, again, another cost adder uh, before you get to wherever it's ultimately used. And then when you look at where it's ultimately used, you have to think about 
what's the efficiency and what am I trying to do with it? And so everyone's very focused on the production side because that's where a lot of capital investment and subsidy might start to say, hey, we, we want to make this clean hydrogen. But depending on where you are and having to get it to somebody who wants it, there's two pieces that we probably need to focus maybe more on at this point is, you know, if people aren't running around today saying, I need hydrogen, please give me some. We need to create demand. We need to illustrate that, like, for an appropriate cost, they can use hydrogen to do something that they were doing with, you know, natural gas or the grid or, or something else today. And then we need to figure out the where are they located and where's the production located and how are we going to get there? And that's actually... One of the great things that Europe's doing, some of their investments are on infrastructure, like upgrading pipelines and things to carry hydrogen. That's something that's really hard for the producers or the the demand takers to um, to invest in, right? That's that's a big bet. So that's where government might come in. But it's really those three big blocks of production, the storage transport part, and the end user that you have to think about when you're saying, "Where's my challenge?" And I I don't think the production side is the big challenge. I think it's actually the other two that require some looking at. Are there sub-segments that even today, it makes sense to pay for hydrogen even at its current cost such that it subsidizes the, the R&D? Because when we think about how the solar industry and other industries develop, you had to target the folks who had a willingness to pay because the alternative cost was still relatively high. And so they may as well give green hydrogen a try. Do, do those segments exist? Yeah, I guess the... They're small right now though, right? So there's there's one market where hydrogen may be a solution. As I mentioned, energy storage might not be sort of the first prime example of where we would use hydrogen today. That's on a big grid like in the United States. When you look at islands and remote places, there's actually the ability to store long duration storage. I know there are some battery technologies coming into play that can do this, but we actually had a... Um, sort of a mini grid project uh, built in South America where they used hydrogen to store solar overnight and power a town or a city uh, with that hydrogen. So somebody's already doing that at sort of demonstration scale. And obviously you need the cost to be in line with whatever local electricity costs are. But in countries that are using or regions that are using diesel, that may come into play quite quickly. The part of the industry I started in was hydrogen fuel cells. And so that's where you're, you're using this hydrogen to turn it back into electricity and water. And I mentioned, you know, we're probably not going to see that for widespread cars today, but people have been using them in forklifts for over a decade, I think. So there's some advantages there. So they're willing to pay because batteries take up a lot of floor space and propane forklifts, you don't want to use those inside because of air quality. So a fuel, a fuel cell is actually a great application for forklifts. So we're going to see wherever it makes sense first it's just going to help bring the cost down and then make whatever the next use case is economic. You know, as I do research, thinking about where folks like you are seeing the hydrogen economy develop, where it's going, something stands out as a missing link and probably important for us to at least touch on it. It just doesn't seem to me like there is a ton of experience broadly in hydrogen as a category in the context of trying to green the industry, certainly. Hydrogen is by no means a new category. There are you know, many, I think, millions of tons of hydrogen being produced for things like forklift and for use in industrial applications like ammonia, traditionally coming from uh, black hydrogen, you know, 
coal and other, other fossil fuels. Where will the experience come from in, as you see it, as we, if we do in fact see this renaissance of hydrogen, where will the talent come from? Yeah, so there's a bunch of companies that have been working on the sort of what I'll call the R&D portion uh, of this is the, the hydrogen fuel cells and the electrolyzers. That's new equipment, or they weren't broadly commercial equipment until recently. People have been working on improving that technology for, for decades. The people who do have experience, there's, there are a lot of skills in the oil and gas sector that are going to be new to the renewable side of things. So when you make a, you know, your audience is going to be a lot of solar developers, you're not used to things like humidity, pressure, volume flow. Like some of those things are part and parcel of all sorts of chemical processes and people from the oil and gas sector uh, have that type of experience because they've been moving gases and liquids for decades. So there's some experience there. There's also the business community has to get their head around what what are the use cases here and how am I going to model this Swiss army knife of technology to fit different ways to make money. And I think that's an area where we don't necessarily have a ton of people doing that, but people are learning those skills. People are trying to upskill, reskill, and refocus on new technologies. Well, and if I was to go back to my example of uh, a Swiss Army knife, you know, you can do many things with hydrogen. A Swiss Army knife has a screwdriver on it, but a screwdriver is a better screwdriver than a Swiss Army knife. You know, there are certain things, uh, it's a great knife, but it's maybe a terrible corkscrew. And so there's, there's some areas where you can use hydrogen and it's not going to make sense uh, immediately. And there's some areas where it won't even make sense long term. But I think by the, as we increase the pie by addressing the use cases that are most useful today, we bring the cost down so that the next one down the rung can sort of step in and say, hey, I'm ready. I see that, I see that it's available where I need it. I see it's available at a cost that I can consider it. And they'll step in and help move the, the scaling forward. Well, it's interesting uh, as well, if you, if, if you haven't seen the hydrogen ladder, uh, we'll link to it for, for folks to go and check it out. But the way that Libric has this structured is, is really thoughtful on the top. It's a category that he calls A, and he actually talks about the A through H um, reasoning. But at the top, it's the unavoidable sectors that are already in some way using hydrogen and are going to be able to um, benefit from even the higher cost of hydrogen today down to the level G, which is uncompetitive, not surprisingly. Hydrogen fuel cell vehicles where you got your first start in the industry is, is kind of all the way at the bottom. Is there anything about the hydrogen ladder that you would disagree with in the way that it's been structured based on your uh, view of what you see in terms of projects coming out in the market now? I think the structure of the ladder is, is very smart to think about what do we want to address first, what's going to make sense, and that there are definitely things at the bottom which are never going to make sense. I would probably, if I looked through each an individual um, category here, might move some up or down. But in general, I think he's captured what uh, a lot of other agencies like the World Hydrogen Council or the uh, International Energy Association have sort of addressed is that prioritize where we're using hydrogen today and don't get too hung up on where we want hydrogen to be versus where it makes sense to, mm -hmm. to use it. That's fantastic. Well, in that regard, DMV and yourself particularly leading this, the, the energy storage and hydrogen segment must have a lot of conversations about hydrogen with practitioners in the field. I'd love to know what countries and maybe even what types of projects you are working on or you see surfacing as early pilot examples of hydrogen in the field. 
Sure. Globally, I think you we see a couple of different categories. There's a few countries like Chile and Australia that are looking at hydrogen as an opportunity to export energy. Uh, and, and the Middle East is doing the same because they they are currently the massive exporters of, of energy through, uh, through hydrocarbons and oil and gas. There are other countries who are the exact flip side of that um, equation, countries like Japan that are saying, how can we import energy? So you do have a, a supply and demand interest there, and that will that will merge up when you get the infrastructure of you know liquefied shipping and costs that come in line uh, appropriately. So there's there's that sort of movement of hydrogen at a global scale, and that's where you can pick some countries. You have other countries that are very or regions that are very, I guess, generally environmentally supportive. And so when Europe is looking at you know how do we build back from COVID, where do we invest? dollars to stimulate uh, our economy. They looked to renewables, but they also said, let's make hydrogen a huge component of that. Natural gas is very expensive in Europe. Could we switch over to a clean fuel that powers our whole region? And so they're looking at big infrastructure spends uh, as well. And they're they're ahead of the states um, in that regard. Uh, just the the number of big projects, particularly offshore wind, is, is of real interest um, to some of the energy companies in, yeah. in Europe coupling with hydrogen. Yeah. And there's actually a good reason for that. If you think about capacity factors, um, you know, solar might have a capacity factor around 25%. Offshore winds closer to 50%. And so you're getting that much more usage out of your right. electrolyzer. So there are there are some neat ways to look at the, the economic model to say, I'm buying this, albeit today, it's expensive electrolyzer. I need to use it if I want to get the, the cost per per unit of hydrogen down. Yeah. yeah, that utilization rate is critical. Yeah. Yeah. That's where a lot of the math is that we that we look at these days uh, for hydrogen. And then I think your audience is probably also very keen on what's going on in the United States. And I think there there's definitely some policy implications of the infrastructure bill or the build back better bill. But currently I can tell you the the interest we've seen over the last sort of year comes from really two or three pockets. One is Gas companies are trying to figure out, is this a disruptor? Am I going to have to have a network that transports all this hydrogen wherever it's coming from? How do I maintain that infrastructure play in the grid of the future or the the energy system of the future? But you also have a lot of renewable folks who are looking at, you know, what's my next play? I'm trying to put more solar on the grid somewhere and every megawatt of solar I put in is decreasing the value that I can get for energy in the middle of the day. Storage has changed that dynamic somewhat, but you also have things like seasonal profiles, you have curtailment issues, which you've mentioned. So there's there's a keen desire on the part of renewables companies to look at, is this going to be how my business model works in the future? And so we're at DMV, we're seeing interest from uh, from those two groups. Primarily, actually I would say there's a spread. The spread between a few companies that have been really aggressive and sort of gotten into this space maybe four years ago said, we want a hydrogen team. We want to figure this out to, you know, their competitor in every way, same size, shape and whatever, coming to us and saying, we don't have a clue what we're doing around hydrogen. Please help us. A, like, can you give us a hydrogen one-on-one so we can get our heads around what people are talking about? Is this hype or are we late? And then thinking about, should we do a pilot project or what's a 
can you run some models for us? We have an idea. Does this make sense? Well, along those lines, yeah, obviously a lot of listeners of this series are developing solar, probably developing storage assets, and they are asking themselves the question, how does the solar industry take advantage of this coming boom? Where do you think are the obvious, given what you said, where are the obvious synergies? How are you coaching those solar companies to think about the product they're creating, which is cheap, clean electricity within the scope of the hydrogen, the coming hydrogen economy, effectively, that is the promise for green hydrogen. So perhaps we won't limit it to just solar. We'll think about solar and then the broader category of renewable energy. So wind and other categories of renewables. And then we'll take a look at storage as a specific subset of that category. So obviously, whenever you're looking for solar, for instance, mm-hmm. the, the, the resource is key, right? You want to be in areas that look like there's a great solar profile. What's interesting about hydrogen, where things change a little bit, and this, this wasn't the case with energy storage, like batteries, is it's not just about the grid anymore. So even if you can figure out, oh, I have the, the most sunny spot uh, in this valley near Phoenix, and it's just soaking up the sun, my electricity's so cheap, I want to make hydrogen. You now have to think differently uh, as a developer. You have to find an off-taker and in the in the grid, the off-taker is just the grid and or a utility, but it's a very financial deal where it's just like, I have this. If you'll pay me enough, I'll build it, and away we go. Because the electricity was very much a, a commodity in demand and very well understood by that industry. Now, you're not just scoping out land and looking for where's the transmission availability. You might be concerned around, do I need a particular geographical storage element? You know, Do I need a salt cavern to put my hydrogen in? Depends on what the application is, but that might change where you're putting a uh, um, your solar plus hydrogen site. You might also think, and this is the key difference, is who's going to use this at the end of the day? So right now, there isn't a huge market for hydrogen, the same way that tapping into the grid gives you an immediate market. So you need to create contractual relationships, a transportation plan and figure out how you're going to get the product you're making, hydrogen, to somebody who wants it. And what does that change about the, the style of your, your project? Can you get financing if somebody agrees to buy hydrogen for, from you for a couple of years? Probably not, right? So, you're, so who's looking for long-term hydrogen uh, supply? These are, these are the interesting dynamics that are changing uh, how you're going to go about the development process. I love it. This is super helpful for thinking about the the frame of reference. And I think importantly, and you must hear this a lot, as you said, can I get a hydrogen 101? Folks don't even know what questions to ask. It's one of the things that we hope to be able to answer in this series is what questions to ask, given where you are thinking about pointing your development scope. And also, if you just aren't sure, then listen through, listen to these conversations and it should help inform those decisions. What happens when green electricity is just so cheap that It doesn't make any sense to put it onto the grid. The hope is that as we build these massive solar parks, we're going to get down to cheaper and cheaper electricity where there's less profitability to sell it back to the grid, frankly. And we have to and and we get to find alternative uses for this power. Well, it turns out the hydrogen um, opportunity requires really cheap power and high utilization rates. Speak to me about that, that storage opportunity when this within the solar concept where we've been thinking about sort of different chemistries of above ground batteries, how does storage fit into the picture there? 
So we know we need longer term storage to get past sort of the, the lithium space that we're in today. And there are new battery technologies that, uh, that purport to, to give you sort of hundreds of hours of storage. I think it's all going to come down to some combination of cost and efficiency. When you get down to zero, like, like almost free electricity, uh, that efficiency matters less. And so when we look at the, uh, the idea of storing hydrogen in big caverns, let's say, you might be at a cost that's going to beat some of those other chemistries. You know, some of those newer chemistries, we don't know how that's going to work out in terms of ultimately when they become commercial, how much do they cost? But that's a real sort of uh, threatening space where uh, we need to see who's going to, to win out there. And so what we're going to see is that uh, you will, when you have extremely low cost renewable electricity, there's going to be an opportunity to either store it in a battery or make hydrogen with the idea being that you can bring it back when there's a peak need, when there isn't any renewables available and you don't want to burn gas. But the unique thing about hydrogen is there is also going to be additional demand that will help subsidize that system through, you know, it could be alternative use cases like aviation fuels that need to be made uh, using hydrogen. If there's no battery or electric solution for aviation and hydrogen's the solution there, then that adds a a credible long-term demand because we're trying to get away from carbon in every single part of the industry. Jason, what I hear you saying, and I'm curious to probe the parameters of this, like lots of folks as project developers think, where should I cite this, right? A lot of the project development game is, is tying up land, tying up interconnect. As you rightly pointed out, if you don't have an off-taker and if you don't understand that off-taker's particular flavor or need for hydrogen, then you've got a lot more complex problems to solve. And, and what I'm hearing from you from a storage perspective is that hydrogen can and potentially will serve as an energy sink, as a place to send excess electricity when it doesn't make sense to send it to the grid and when you don't have an on-site use for it directly as electricity. Therefore, the appropriate sort of early use cases are going to be for steel and ammonia and places like that where they're already using hydrogen and the excess electricity production will then go into a hydrogen process in, in, the, in the sense that it's excess production from creating already on-site low-cost electricity, which is already utilized in the industrial process. So first, is, does that seem right uh, or, or accurate? Am I missing an element of that in terms of like hydrogen is going to be co-located as an additional process in an industrial facility where they're already going, going solar for low-cost electricity from solar or wind? And I guess the B piece of this is how big of a market does that really represent? in the in the relative near term is it is a gigantic market and we just haven't figured out some core piece of how to connect it well if you look at just even ammonia specifically that's a pretty big market in terms of megawatts to make enough green hydrogen to supply ammonia that's big enough to be material and and look at when it comes to vehicles let's say as another example that's a more involved chain where you need not only somebody to make hydrogen let's say trucks, uh, you also need somebody convinced enough to buy a fleet of those trucks. You need the stations, which will sort of indicate where you're going to make it and ship it to. And so there might be four players in that space, but it could be economic sort of early on. The ammonia one's a little different where you just have to figure out who's, who needs ammonia today or who needs it to upgrade petrochemicals. The broader sector of energy, oil and gas, traditional fossil fuels, obviously are incumbent in the sector of, um, of ammonia and hydrogen production today. 
and they also are a major portion of energy delivery across the United States and around the world. There are several elements of how oil and gas sectors are going to play a role. We've touched on some of those. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the nature of the existing infrastructure within oil and gas and how, as the new kids on the block in renewables, we might think about the uh, the olive branch of participation that we offer or that we need to extend or that we need to receive uh, between the two sectors for this to really take root and pr- provide a, a flourishing hydrogen economy. Yeah, I think one of the things you're going to, to need to think about is do I, if I'm involving the pipelines, like the gas distribution networks, do I look at them as sort of a second grid, right? That's something that we're not used to doing. But what's great about the existing infrastructure is in areas where you can increase the hydrogen concentration within uh, natural gas today, that creates a vast, already paid for um, or already depreciated container system or a place, a sink to put that product. You then have to think about who can take that product out of that system and pay me for it. So that's a new sort of uh, intermediary in the group is, do you, do you need to go talk to a gas company to figure that out? Then you also might want to look to partners who are used to transporting, pressurizing, moving and producing natural gas or petrochemicals, because they'll have a skill set that typically solar developers aren't going to have, right? I'll link to this. There's a great joint industry project you guys are working on uh, around the gas value chain. And I'll, I'll read from the you know, the, some of the work that's been done there, wide-scale hydrogen economy will require new or adapted gas infrastructure. And I love the word sector coupling. <laughs> I think that's really hmm. well, well chosen. Sector coupling with renewables and the electricity grid and the adoption of hydrogen for a range of industries and applications uh, will be required. With the gas infrastructure in particular, when we talk about adapted, I don't really understand, and I, th- I would high, uh, wager most folks don't, wh- what sort of adaptation would need to be found for us to find that sort of middle ground pathway. Everything I've read suggests that we don't go straight from sort of black hydrogen to green hydrogen. There is this natural, we'll call it blue hydrogen adaptation and sector coupling between renewables and natural gas. What sort of upgrades the gas infrastructure are you seeing folks uh, sort of really evaluating economically and financially? So it's a massive investment and a massive risk if you're just going to put hydrogen into a natural gas pipeline and not think about every single component within that system? And is it is it designed to tolerate the level of hydrogen that you need? Because it's got to go from wherever it's injected through sort of bulk uh, pipelines down to neighborhood pipelines and then into somebody's house and maybe into their water heater or something. And because it's lighter, it actually is harder to push through technically, right? Uh, there are some dynamics around like the pressure and flow rates change and it has mm-hmm. a different um, energy Density. Consistency, uh, density. Mm-hmm. So you're you're going to have to flow more of it to get the same level of heat if that's what you're mm-hmm. ultimately trying to use right. hydrogen for. And so when when a gas company looks at even just doing a pilot, they'll take a neighborhood and say, take a look at our whole system map within this area and help us figure out, you know, where are the risks or where's the where are the types of mm. equipment that are going to set the limit on, you know, is this a one percent injection limit? or a 5% injection limit. Now, I want to clarify, when you're saying injection, you're referring specifically to blending hydrogen into the existing natural gas pipeline, right? Yeah. Now, if you wanted to go to 100% hydrogen, you'd likely, in most cases, you'd need pipes made of, not made out of steel. And so yeah. you'd, you'd be talking about a totally different system. And, and some places are made out of 
plastics instead of steel, but a lot of the stuff that we have is historically steel. And that's the problem. So for someone maybe who's first hearing about this, a good way to think about it, and we're talking like there, there's a fundamental difference that as an industry, we've been, we've been trained to think about electrons, mm-hmm. natural gas industry by and large, been trained to think about molecules. And if you want to think about it as someone who, like we all generally have, we've gone to the gas pump and we've seen over the last 10, 15 years, the introduction of cleaner fuels, you know, ethanol in particular, blending into gasoline to make it a more clean burning fuel. I think that's a good analogy. And and I think many of us, for example, back in the aughts, you know, back when you were thinking about getting in, uh, you know, expanding um, hydrogen fuel cells, we were all looking at the biofuels boom that we, that everyone said was impending, right? Ethanol was going to take over the gasoline uh, channel. I feel like some of that sort of hype is being, um, is being postured right now for hydrogen blending into the natural gas system. But it seems like you're, what you're saying is there's a credible scenario where like we now see at every, every BP station, a 10% blend of ethanol, we are going to see a blend of hydrogen into the natural gas system for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And, and right now there's already some hydrogen in natural gas pipelines. They've, they've historically tried to keep it out of there, right? It's been, they've been looking at hydrogen as a, let's make sure we don't get too much in there. Now we're talking mm. about, actually, I want to put it in there. And it's like, okay, well, how will we do that safely? Right. It brings up a point that I mentioned Paul Martin earlier. For those who follow Paul Martin, and I, I think he's a fun person to follow because he's, he's really brilliant. Chemical scientist, engineer, I think doctorate, and has spent time in the hydrogen economy for a long time. You know, he seems to be a doom and gloom type of person. He wrote a fantastic article from the perspective of forcing you to think about things from the naysayers perspective uh, called Big Oil's Last Grand Scam. He postures this, this argument that the renewables industry, by and large, are useful idiots and pawns of the oil and gas industry, sort of upholding this idea of hydrogen as an economy. So as someone who's spent 20 years thinking about this, what are your thoughts around our industry as useful idiots for oil and gas versus this being a real opportunity for us to lean into? I think one of the ways that I like to look at this to ensure that, you know, I don't think we're useful idiots, I don't think renewables is on the wrong track, is Nobody has an answer for how we're not going to burn up the earth if we don't stop doing what we're doing. So at some point, are we going to have carbon taxes or rules or, or something that's going to force us as a society to get away from oil and gas? Mm-hmm. And the grid itself, you're going to have to burn something clean or create a storage mechanism uh, that doesn't emit carbon. Right now, albeit that hydrogen is expensive, we know that it will work, right? We can make hydrogen from electricity. We can store it somewhere and we can turn it back Mm -hmm. into electricity. It's not the most efficient way to store electricity and it's not the cheapest way today, but we don't really have an alternative. And that's where I think that um, unless I've been programmed by the oil and gas (laughs) industries over time, uh, I truly believe that when we see that there is an option to sort of save ourselves or get away from the problem we've created, that's one that we see will work. And that's One of the reasons, aside from just the fact that costs have come down, that I think people are really pointing at hydrogen is, I think as a society, we're starting to come to a point where, while not everybody believes in in human-caused climate change, a lot of people do, and we're getting more concerned about it. This just looks like it's the one technology we're certain might might be able to get us to that 100% or or close to it. Jason, I have to imagine that you also have your go-to sort of teachers or journals, uh, maybe websites or podcasts, where do you 
get up to speed for yourself as you're thinking deeply on this topic? I think a lot of the the volume or noise around hydrogen is coming through sort of the newsletters that you might look at in renewables like like Recharge or um, Woodmax now Canary, I think. They, mm-hmm. they probably talk about things like that. I'll tell you what's actually been a big surprise. I didn't used to use Reddit until maybe the last couple of years. Wow. And I got on a, there's a hydrogen uh, topic there, but, you know, people all around the world are kind of picking interesting articles. And what surprises me as I'm sort of just on my iPad at night, uh, I'll see articles in there about exciting things that I didn't catch uh, in the news about hydrogen. And there's a really high volume of uh, technology articles. And, and a lot yeah. of us, a lot of us get stuck in LinkedIn and I'm, I'm guilty as charged. You get stuck mm-hmm. in LinkedIn. I recently had a friend say, well, you're missing, you're missing the other half of, uh, of the uh, energy brain trust if you aren't on Reddit. I was recently with a friend of mine whose son doesn't do LinkedIn at all, something, someone in his 20s, and yeah. he usually is able to well defend his points in an argument with his father, who is a very, very, very well knowledgeable uh, sort of character in the space. And his father will say, well, where did you get those data, that data? And he's like, well, link Reddit. <laughs> so, I love that yeah. advice. Um, Jason, I'm going to ask you to send me a link to the Reddit hydrogen group or groups that you follow. And we'll link to them as well in the, in the article. Sure. Jason, on a little more perhaps somber tone, what sacrifices do you think we'll have to make to achieve the hydrogen economy that you envision? I think the, I think one of the biggest things that we have to do, especially like our whole industry exists because of climate change primarily, right? And in some cases, we've gotten to a point where we're economically better off than we were in certain elements. But for the most part, we're, we're trying to get away from a fuel that's non-sustainable and we're trying to get to something that doesn't emit carbon. And any type of change has resistance, right? It's easier to get over that resistance when we see a huge um, economic opportunity to do something cheaper or better. But often there's a, a pain associated with that. And so I think a human capacity for change is going to be one of the biggest things. Like, are people going to want to fill up from a hydrogen tank or buy a hydrogen truck? Are steelmakers going to want to switch away from using coal or coke and switching over to hydrogen? When there's a great business case, it's pretty easy to make that change. When you have to be an early adopter and pay a little bit more or take a technological risk as one of the first movers, we see people sit and wait, right? We, it's, it's that sort of uh, um, inertia to change. Jason, as we always wrap, I'd like to know what's in your crystal ball. As we look out over the panorama for the next 20 years, what does this look like as an industry? Yeah, I think when you go out 20 years, you give enough runway for a lot of the things we're talking about to occur. So I think we are going to see both blue hydrogen being made from natural gas and green hydrogen being made from renewables. I think the biggest question for industry right now is, it feels like it's kicking off right now. How much headway are we going to make in the first five years? I don't know. But by 10 years, I think we're going to see some considerable movement or maybe a lot. And by 20 years, certainly. I think one of the interesting things about hydrogen right now, specifically green hydrogen, We saw how quickly uh, solar moved from being something that was way too expensive, R&D, pilot stage, you know, places like California were trying it out and nobody else wanted to. Very quickly, the costs came down by like an order of magnitude. And 
what I see in hydrogen right now is we're moving from a place where many of these electrolyzer companies were making kilowatt scale mm -hmm. uh, electrolyzers. We've now got a few projects that are, you know, six megawatts, 20 megawatts. Wow. Um, so we're getting into utility scale, but people are making claims about projects they're going to build that are gigawatt scale. And so the, the leapfrog to go from we're getting our first megawatt scale commercial units out there to being a hundred to a thousand times bigger. That's incredible, right? That, and mm. that might be the, unfortunately, that might be the pace we need to decarbonize at the speed we need. So I say good on you. <laughs> but it does seem, Jason, that gigawatt scale innovation is in fact the, the goal and, and the aim if we are to achieve the massive decarbonization that we need on the grid to effectively save the planet. And if hydrogen is going to play a role, I dare say you're right. We don't need megawatt scale solutions. We need gigawatt scale solutions. We'll be digging in further uh, with some other friends as well as potentially uh, you in a, in a follow on conversation about how we get to those gigawatt scale uh, realities and, and not just claims over the next 10 years. Jason Goodhand is segment lead for energy storage at globally renowned third-party engineering firm DNV. And it is such a pleasure to have a chance to tap into your knowledge, Jason, from two decades of experience in the hydrogen economy. Thank you for sharing with us. Hey, thanks for having me. I, I love talking about hydrogen. This is great. Well, I appreciate Jason taking the time to share from the well of knowledge of almost 20 years of being not just in the energy sector, but having started out in the hydrogen sector. And we're going to do at the end of these episodes, something a little bit different. I'm going to bring my colleague and counterpart here for the series, Sheldon Kimber, back into the conversation after each of the next four episodes. And we're going to just talk a little bit about what are the learning lessons or takeaways or perhaps even counterpoints. So without further ado, Sheldon, welcome back. Hey there, Nico. Thanks for bringing me back in to do this. Absolutely. Sheldon, you have a unique perspective as a developer and a lot of the conversations that are coming after the episode that everyone's by now, by now hopefully listened to where you outlined the inevitability of hydrogen, I want to get your perspective as a developer on their points, their perspectives, their insights. I'm curious if there are things that you learned, if there are things that challenge the way that you learned, just as I ask everyone in this series, what are you changing your mind about? How have you been challenged? I'd love to hear from your perspective. What stands out for you from you know, the last 45 minutes of commentary uh, that we had with Jason? Well, first and foremost, what stands out is that he is a, a technical expert and I am not. Uh, <laughs> that, so we'll take that away. Uh, the good news is that I employ technical experts and most of the time I even listen to and learn from them. You know, one thing that stands out is I think as business people, we sometimes sort of just rely on pattern recognition, if you will, and take certain things for granted. But, you know, the first thing he said right out of the gate about sort of scale up equals cost down, right? You know, we all know how that worked in renewable energy. I've been a part of it and I didn't know and now can probably after the fact explain how the scale up of polysilicon from microchips to solar cells in terms of the volume required drove the cost down, right? But, you know, to hear him talk about sort of the construction of electrolyzers and the modularity of the cells involved in those stacks or, you know, mm -hmm. themselves really sort of confirms, obviously, in, you know, more detail than, than I can offer 
the fact that some of the same dynamics of scalability and learning curves are at play here. And we're, we're likely to benefit from that in the same way that we have in, you know, solar cells and battery cells. So, you know, that's what I took away. And I don't know if you saw the same thing or, you know, I know that you're not an engineer either. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm definitely not an engineer. And the conversation generally at a technical level stretches me to think about things in new, in new and complex ways. You know, one of the things around the whole idea of how hydrogen is captured, stored, utilized that Jason sort of uh, wrapped my head around was we really don't have a solid answer yet for two things, storing it in mass containers that are airtight. You know, Jason talked specifically about the difficulty of injecting hydrogen to existing pipelines up to a point, but that blending was inevitable, as inevitable and, and true as, you know, ethanol in our current petrol or gasoline pipelines. I'd love to hear your thoughts around the concept that you introduced in episode one, decoupling the wrecks. Specifically, what do you believe is true about project development when you are looking at the complexity of dealing in an entirely new molecular structure and transport system? Yeah, you know, I mean, what's really interesting is, you know, who you wind up playing with there, right? Because mm -hmm. the technical sort of literature, if you will, and the, the examples we're seeing from Europe demonstrate that blending at much higher levels than almost mm. any U.S. pipeline company has accepted at this point is absolutely possible. You know, as I've said, I think a bunch of times, many times to you, we've talked about this, is it's kind of really resembles the early days of the power grid, right? Where, mm -hmm. you know, we were told that, well, if you, if you put 10% renewables on the grid, it's going to crash everything, you know, but at the same time, I'm not, you know, a safety engineer and I'm not looking to push anybody to the limits of their, of their system. But I do think that, well, I know from, from experience because we're, you know, and oftentimes pursuing business opportunities with them at Intersect, that there are immediate opportunities for pipeline blending with parties that own and operate pipelines who are very, you know, accommodating to blending opportunities uh, on their systems. They're very careful. They know their systems well. They know what's downstream of those blending points on their system. They know, you know, they're able to measure and anticipate how much hydrogen is going to make it to various points on their system. So it, it's a complicated thing for sure. But yeah, I, I, what I took away was that he was actually fairly bullish on the early phases of blending. You know, I don't think any developer or other person looking to blend or get to scale on pipeline hydrogen is really anticipating that like, you know, we're going to blend 50, 60% plus into the, the natural gas system. I think at that point, it really becomes a question of, the gas transportation companies going, oh, wait, this whole hydrogen thing is actually a whole business in and of itself. And we're going to build some separate pipes, maybe in the same right-of-ways, maybe in new right-of-ways. I thought it funny that he mentioned sort of in a very logical kind of technical way that, you know, the order of operations was a little bit out of sorts, right? That we were spending all this time because the renewable developers were looking for ways to, you know, use their power on production when kind of it would make more sense technically and otherwise to maybe focus on what are the end uses? How do we make those more efficient? How do we make those valuable back into, you know, storage and transportation and then eventually get into, okay, where does it need to be produced? How much, what's the cost? And I think that's very interesting, very logical. I think that's obviously how, you know, it evolves in Europe and a lot of other places. But what's interesting about the United States is that the way we make policy, I think, you know, really drives how, how these things work in our country. We can wish and hope for other things, but they'll never happen. And, and at least that's what I've accepted. And, and really the way we make policy is 
we radically subsidize the upstream and the production of something and then let it flow downstream as as a cheap input and that mm-hmm. really subsidizes markets so you know the example that you know i've said several times is just you know the greatest subsidy for batteries is solar the solar itc right or the wind ptc because it makes power so cheap in certain times of day that it's worth storing and so you know i think mm-hmm. we'll see a lot of the same thing on the hydrogen side but it's definitely you know, backward to what Jason was, you know, sort of arguing for. And you'll find, as well as the series unfolds, some compelling commentary that alludes to what you said in the very first conversation that we had, which is what do we do with electrons and how do we build businesses and models around electrons when they're too cheap to meter, right? When we are generating them in such quantities that they are useful for things that we previously thought were not cost-effective or efficient. And it, I'd not keyed in on this in the way that you had, so I'm glad that you illuminated it. The reality is that not just the solar ITC, but the PTC and, and, and many other sort of U.S. For, uh, source subsidies are creating the reality that we needed for the hydrogen economy to exist. I really, really enjoyed Jason's, I think he was using something that you had mentioned about Paul Martin, right? And, mm-hmm. and this uh, hydrogen being the, what, what did you say? It was the, the Swiss Army knife. Yeah, there, there you go. The Swiss Army knife of, 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 of the energy transition. And I think Jason said that it was uh, a great knife, but a terrible corkscrew or something like that. <laughs> and I think, you know, Paul Martin is, you know, I, I believe, again, also a technical expert. And I don't, you know, respect his opinions. And I know he's skeptical of a lot of, you know, the hydrogen hype and um, can get behind, you know, I think he's one of those people that that is worth reading there's a lot of ways mm-hmm. in which he's right and i think can can help us all figure out how to do this right but at the same time i would extend the analogy and sort of say you don't buy a pocket knife because you intend to use it to carve your thanksgiving turkey right or you don't buy a pocket knife because you want to use the corkscrew to open you know your 200 dollars bottle of wine at your fancy dinner you buy a pocket knife because when you get into the backcountry and all hell is breaking loose and you need a tool, it's there. All the tools are there. And I would argue that climate change is not Thanksgiving dinner. It's the backcountry when we're facing a big emergency and that Mm -hmm. is sort of life-threatening. And, you know, you don't really care that the corkscrew or the knife is not the best corkscrew or the best knife. That's my sort of retort to the, you know, hydrogen is the Swiss Army knife of the uh, energy transition. So overall... This was great. This is the first time I've ever been part of anything like this, and I really enjoyed Jason's thoughts. So I'm looking forward to the next one. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. It's part of a five-part series exploring the green hydrogen economy from the perspective of renewable development, technical expertise, financial analysis, and commercial opportunity. I hope that you'll subscribe to the show on Spotify and check us out also over on the web at mysuncast.com forward slash hydrogen, where you can read more about each guest, find additional background information and references that we discussed in this episode. If you're totally unfamiliar with me, well, I've interviewed more than 400 founders, leaders, entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs in the clean energy industry over the last six years through my Suncast podcast, all in an effort to help you figure out exactly where you fit in the clean energy transition. If you haven't yet, I'd really encourage you to go listen to Suncast. It's the most comprehensive podcast in existence documenting the rise of the solar and clean energy revolution 
from the voices of the leaders brave enough to stand on the front lines. This Green Hydrogen podcast is a production of Suncast Media, and Season 1 is brought to you by Intersect Power. Thank you for listening.